the goal yes. of these schemes is not uh, uh, to address climate change or biodiversity loss. The goal is to maintain the status quo for rich countries to continue business as usual, to destroy and polluting as usual, and to maintain their way of life. That's the primary political goal. And the secondary political goal is to create a new profitable asset class for the financial sector. Hello, and welcome to Economics for Rebels, the podcast of the European Society for Ecological Economics. Up until recently, it was an act of rebellion to pursue economics as if nature mattered and the earth was finite. This rebellion must bring a major shift to economic thinking. Our podcast is dedicated to exploring the economics of just and sustainable transformations in conversations with scientists, experts, activists, pushing for rapid and radical change for people and planet. Welcome to our podcast. I am your host, Alexandra Kovesh, and you are listening to the Economics for Rebels podcast. When we say money cannot buy conscience, in today's economy, we could not be further from the truth. Our current economy can turn absolutely anything into financial assets, even irresponsible behavior. A company that is incapable of reducing its carbon emission can just buy carbon credits and continue business as usual. Another that is about to ruin a habitat can offset its wrongdoing by paying money to someone else to save another habitat somewhere else. While these solutions may make bad behavior slightly more costly, they do not stop them. Today's guest, Frederic Hatch, explains us how these miniature markets work and how they turn environmental policies into gambling casinos. Frederic Hatch comes from the financial market. After spending 12 years in investment banking, for six years he led the policy analysis team at the NGO called Finance Watch. He's now the director and co-founder of the Green Finance Observatory, a think tank analyzing market-based solutions applied to environmental policies, from carbon markets to biodiversity offsetting and nutrient mitigation schemes. He also teaches sustainable finance at Sciences Po in Paris. Welcome, Frederick. Hello, thank you for inviting me. Thanks for being with us. Um, in the first episode of our season three with uh, Sophus Tuam Gassen, um, we talked about the difficulties around biodiversity compensation. Uh, this time, with you, I would like to discover the mechanisms of how our current economy manages to turn almost anything into a financial product and then enable even the least sustainable actors to just continue being unsustainable. Uh, let's start at the beginning. When did these financial products first appear and what was the logic behind them? Right. The first of these new hybrid pseudo-commodities appeared in the US. It was a sulfur dioxide market. Um, at the time, um, the US was suffering from acid rains. And um, the Republican government did, was against environmental regulation that would curb um, the emissions because it would be bad for economic growth. And 
financial markets were presented as a way to reconcile uh, irreconcilable interest uh, between Republicans who wanted economic growth and environmentalists who wanted the issue being addressed. And the beauty of the market is that it could promise everything to everyone. It could say, look, the issue will be addressed one day when the price is right. Um, of course, um, well, it was not like that in reality. I mean, this market was not too bad. It actually worked, but that's, that's the history of it. Now, this market really started internationally under the Kyoto, UN Kyoto Protocol, right? What happened is that um, the countries had um, nationally determined, they had national objectives for curbing their emissions. And the US pushed for the inclusion of so-called flexibility mechanism that would make it cheaper and easier for countries to reach their um, targets. And this is how they launched uh, this so-called carbon offset markets, where the idea is that instead of curbing your emissions, uh, you could compensate them, allegedly, through some actions somewhere else at a different time. Um, so the goal from the very beginning of, is, is important to understand is not mitigation, right? This, this, these mechanisms, which are um, a legal construct, are not about curbing emissions and they're not about sequestering past emissions. They're about sequestering and therefore enabling future emissions. So this is not about mitigation. The goal is economic, is to make it cheaper uh, for countries to reach our objective. So what that means is that if compensation worked, um, emissions would merely be displaced. But because in reality they do not work in most cases, uh, they contribute to a continuous growth in emissions. So basically these markets work that if somebody um, cannot curb emissions, can buy off emissions from those who can meet the criteria. Is that right? No, what happened is that, so for example, you have countries like the US or Europe, or well, European uh, member states, instead of curbing their emissions, they would uh, buy land in global south country where land is cheap, uh, plant a few trees and pretend that it compensates for their emission because the trees are supposed to sequester the CO2. Of course, uh, that's not true in reality because um, for example, fossil fuel emissions stay in the atmosphere for more than 100 years, whereas trees um, sequester um, CO2 at best for a few decades. Uh, but it was decided that it would be considered as equivalent. And that's the whole process that you referred to earlier. In order to create these financial instruments, you need to uh, create a number of rules to, for example, decide that uh, emitting uh, fossil fuel gases uh, at specific time and place is equivalent to um, sequestering another gas at a different country in a different time. This is not really equivalent, but you need to pretend that it's equivalent to create standardization. And then you need to claim that some actions can compensate for the emissions, such as planting trees. Again, as we've seen, you have uh, several issues that mean that in reality, it's almost never equivalent because the, the time frame is not comparable or because there is no additionality 
For example, some project will claim that some forests were under threat of being cut, and by protecting them, they're compensating. But in fact, these forests were not necessarily under a threat of being cut in the first place. So, but you have all these kind of assumptions that are embedded into legal language to somehow uh, end up with um, a piece of paper, which is a carbon credit, which is a promise to do something somewhere, to take an action that will compensate for a bad behavior. And this promise, this, this piece of paper is freely tradable. And you can make money uh, on it in, in three ways. Uh, there are three ways which where uh, why, how it's profitable. But the first primary way is that by purchasing these credits and claiming to compensate, you do not have, you can give the illusion that you're acting on, against climate change. And so you can continue to emit as usual. You do not have to curb your destructive activities or polluting activities and forego the related profits for your shareholders. Uh, you just have to plant a few trees somewhere which really costs you uh, nothing. So that's the first thing. It enables to maintain business as usual. Um, the other way that uh, you can benefit financially is that these credit schemes are typically uh, designed to favor the financial centers of the global north countries, such as um, you know uh, Wall Street, City of London, Paris, well, Singapore maybe also. Um, and the third way is you can also bet on the future price of these credits. I mean, pollution becomes just um, a financial asset, which means you can, just like you can bet on the future price of a stock, you can bet on the future price of um, a pollution credit, the right to pollute uh, somewhere, the right to technically emit one ton of CO2 equivalent. So that, those are the, the different ways how you transform pollution, which is intangible, into a financial asset that is freely tradable, delineated, and standardized. And you, uh, through all these legal conventions, if you will, you can then um, freely trade it and make money of it uh, in different ways. And the same goes for biodiversity, because carbon is, is quite well known nowadays. As there's been a lot of recent uh, prominent scandals. But what is less known is that this is about to happen um, on biodiversity on a massive, massive scale over the next year. Can you elaborate a little bit on, on the second one? Because I, I think that's not really obvious for all of us. Um, you were saying that it's basically the financial centers of the North who can benefit from all this. And, and the, the whole system is, is crooked towards them. Could you, could you let us know how this is happening? Sure. So, okay. Uh, right now, there is an initiative by African countries to try and to change that. But primarily, what, the way it happened is that these credits are uh, issued and verified by institutions that are... Uh, primarily based in uh, industrialized countries. That's at the first level. And then these credits are traded on uh, through brokers, 
And the brokers are not brokers in the host countries where you are planting the trees. They're generally brokers in the global north countries. So for every trade, they take a commission. They get a fee, right? And then uh, you have uh, banks who repackage these credits into financial products. And those are, again, banks from uh, industrialized countries. For example, you have BNP Paribas. And they have a real estate fund. And real estate is not exactly uh, green as a sector. But the fund also purchases some carbon credits. And then they claim that their fund is carbon neutral. And boom, this is repackaged and sold as a green financial product. Um, So, yeah, this is the way um, the financial institutions who uh, trade, who issue also. And and then based on these credits, you have also uh, what is called uh, derivatives such as uh, futures and options contract that are traded in um, marketplaces located in the global north. So derivatives uh, is, think of them as just a financial bet. It's really that. Uh, uh, it's you bet on the future value of something. You can bet on the future value of anything uh, with derivatives. You can bet on the number of days that will rain in Arizona next month. You can bet on the future price of oil uh, you can bet on whatever you you can imagine, as long as you find somebody who is willing to trade on the other side. But lay logic tells us that in a world where carbon emissions and other ecologically damaging things are going to get more and more important in the future, it should get more and more expensive to do that especially that also there are limits to the offsetting that we can do. So to me, as, um, as a non, you know, somebody who, who, who doesn't fully understand this logic, to me it would seem crazy to think that in any time in the future this can become cheaper. Right. So... Okay, you have to distinguish a few things here. There, in fact, there are two types of carbon markets. You have compliance cap and trade, cap and trade schemes, and you have offsets market. Those are two different types. Um, cap and trade is, is a different mechanism. Uh, it's where you have each credit that are issued by governments every year, and there is a cap on the number of credits. And uh, companies have a, an obligation to, to, um, to purchase these credits to match their emissions. Uh, the price of the credits here is linked to the number of credits being issued versus the demand. Uh, this is um, an absolute failure from an environmental perspective because simply all the governments have issued far too many credits. In fact, far more than actual emissions, just because they continue to prioritize in a very short-sighted focus um, the economic growth of their national companies and competitiveness. Offset is different. The offset market is voluntary market, right? So companies who purchase this credit don't have any obligation to purchase them. It's mostly for PR purposes. Like you're Netflix, you're Apple, you want to look green, you purchase these credits. Uh, also, it's it's, uh, it's not a um, standardized market. You have lots of initiatives, framework, etc. And so this is not really a mature market, but this is about to change. And I will come back to that later. Well, there are two, okay, there's two points here. 
First of all, yes, you're right. In theory, the price of these credits should increase. And in fact, that is the pitch of the market proponent. They say, you know, rather than um, banning or curbing uh, emissions, let the market do the job. And the way it does the job is through so-called price signal. That is, the, the price of the credit is supposed to increase, and that should lead to a change in behavior uh, of um, polluters and um, destroyers of nature. Um, now, there's uh, several issues with that. Uh, in the case of offsets, typically, the first issue is that uh, for that to happen, you need to have a, you know, a limited number of credit that might, that is well, at least inferior to the potential emissions, right? But in the case of offsetting, there is, you can create an unlimited number of credits, right? As, as much as you, as, as you can find available land, basically. So if you have unlimited supply, the price cannot rise. That's the first element. Um, secondly, uh, for the price signal to exist, that is for the you know the for people to change behavior based on the price, you need to be able to not only see a high price, but also to anticipate that the price will remain high. Right? I mean, if you're an industrial company and you need to define your strategy for the next 15 years, uh, you need to be confident that the price uh, of the carbon credits that you see is the what you base your strategy on will remain more or less stable. Now, the reality of carbon markets is that the price is incredibly volatile. Uh, and so, I mean, it's, it's, it's one of the most volatile uh, asset classes. And this is due to the very high proportion of speculators. The more speculators you have, the more volatile the price. And that means that you, it, it does not have a positive effect on behavior. It has a paralyzing effect on behavior because you don't know which price to take into consideration. Right? So that's the state of play as it is. But beyond, but, but I was, as I was going to say, uh, these markets are about to completely change scale. In the case of carbon, You've had a lot of prominent scandals, the, the biggest one being Vera. Vera, the global um, certifier of carbon credits, who is in charge of certifying that they correspond to actual emission reductions, blah, blah, blah. Uh, an investigation saw that 90% uh, of the credit that they certified corresponded to nothing. So it was just a big lie. Um, but despite of that, you would think that the carbon market would collapse from that. But it will not collapse because there is so much at stake politically. So the, what's happening right now, and we see that, for example, in the agenda of the COP28, you see the program. The goal uh, by the proponents is first to rehabilitate the image of carbon credits through uh, allegedly high integrity certification bullshit. And then to push government to transfer them from voluntary to compliance scheme where demand is guaranteed by law. And then that's a completely change of scale because the lesson uh, uh, from voluntary market is you really, it's a niche market. I mean, you never had big demand for voluntary. I mean, there's only go so far, so many purchases you will do for PR purposes. But if tomorrow it becomes uh, obligatory to compensate, then boom, the market will explode. And what is, that's what's about to happen. And the same for biodiversity. And that's very problematic not only because these markets are a failure from an environmental perspective, 
but also because uh, they require a lot of land. And there's been many, many documented cases of land grabbing, human rights abuse, etc. So the, 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 the push to buy land in global South countries and to evict indigenous communities from their land will be exponentially multiplied in the future due to this initiative. These are so, so interesting and so important topics for us to understand. Um, do you have any idea how big these markets are nowadays? Look, what I can tell you is that there was a recent study that found that the land required for compensation, if it was done through land use compensation, was 1 billion hectares, which is bigger than the USA. Wow. So... We're talking a staggering scale. And what that means is that the, the you will have unscrupulous project developers uh, trying to buy land or steal land. And they will go where land is cheapest or even better, where land rights are not formalized, which is typically indigenous land. And you have all these stupid initiatives, say, for example, like Macron, who wants to plant a billion trees, even though we know that's not the solution. It's been amply demonstrated, but it's good PR, so let's do it nevertheless. So the, the pressure for land, I mean, land will become the new gold, and uh, the, the geopolitics of it will be very problematic. We already know that it will lead to mass evictions uh, of local populations, where they are the least protected by the law. But it doesn't matter because the goal yes. of these schemes is not uh, uh, to address climate change or biodiversity loss. The goal is to maintain the status quo for rich countries to continue um, business as usual, to destroy and polluting as usual, and to maintain their way of life. That's the primary political goal. And the secondary political goal is to create a new profitable asset class for the financial sector. The, to put it in a, in a more diplomatic language, but that's saying exactly the same, uh, these governments are willing to act on climate change and biodiversity loss, but only to the extent that it does not have an adverse impact on their gross competitiveness. So that is, I don't want to act. Knowing full well what that means in terms of uh, hundreds of millions of climate migrants and billions of deaths to come, but... Um, that's real politics. They choose re-election and short-term economic growth. Yeah, what you're saying is um, is shocking, especially what you said about the the land um, use, uh, the magnitude of, of of land use. It's it's just incredible. And also, I I believe, well, you mentioned that some report found that only ninety, well, ninety percent of of what was traded in terms of money had absolutely nothing to do with with the act of, of at least doing something. Um, so those people who are doing um, certain pro-environmental uh, things, they're, they're not even getting their fair share of, of, the, of, of the pie. And... Um, and that, well, that, that makes it even, you know, it, it makes even less sense to do it. I mean, it is, it's not, there's nothing new here, really. I mean, what is new, I mean, this is climate politics for the past 15 years. What is new is that it's about to expand as pressure is increasing. 
you know, political pressure to change is increasing. So pushback is increasing. Uh, so this, yeah, this is really not new. I mean, this is from you know, green neocolonialism. There is a form of historical continuity, if you will, right? And oil-rich oil nations will pump until we will try to pump until the last drop. Um, and you know, you just the more you have public pressure to act, the more you will pedal for solution. The COP28 is a very good example of that. Uh, what will be discussed at this COP is not uh, curbing fossil fuel use, but it's directing the topic, directing the attention towards the infamous carbon offsetting and um, carbon capture and storage, and also pushing biodiversity offset markets. Uh, so, I mean, it, it is shocking, but this is nothing new. That's what I'm saying. What is what is what is new is that the climate politics are now applied to biodiversity, and and the scale of it will change. But the principle is not new. If you recall, there's this very famous quote from uh, George Bush Senior at the Rio Summit in '92, where he said, um, "The American way of life is not negotiable," and everything is in this sentence. It's incredibly brutal. It's basically giving the middle finger to the to the planet and future generation. Yes, uh, and I mean, just last year we um, uh, we published a paper criticizing the air transport industry's climate strategy, and I mean it had a, a million problem uh, <laughs> problems with it. But uh, what the air transport industry is uh, saying is they're promising to have emissions by 2050, but in all their scenarios of how to do that, their scenarios, con even their, their most uh, optimistic scenarios actually contained 50 to 75% offsetting. So even the, in the ideal setting, what they called optimistic, it's 50% offsetting. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in fact, there were some documents that were um, leaked, I think, a few years ago, where they explained that thanks to the new um, carbon offset market dedicated to aviation called Corsia, uh, that would enable them to double uh, aviation emissions. So, yeah, this is really... Uh, it's interesting. I mean, well... It's interesting. It's uh, it's not a big surprise. It's uh, we we have known for a while that um, climate change and biodiversity loss will uh, lead to you know I mean will lead to complicate will completely change geopolitics. Uh, will probably um, lead to a shift from liberal democracies to more authoritarian. Well, you know this will change everything politically, and but. This industry will fight for their survival. Neoliberal governments will um, protect them through these uh, false solutions and market scheme as much as they can. And uh, yeah, you have very few rare exceptions. And then when, when a lot of industries, they, they publish their strategies, they just say, well, you know, we will manage to do it through these schemes where, you know, some of it, as you mentioned, I mean, they're, they're almost like Ponzi schemes. You know, it's just at some point they must collapse. No, the thing is what, what's happening is 
But the way I understand it is, you know, 15 or 20 years ago, you could uh, buy time. It's all about buying time, right? So 15 or 20 years ago, you would buy time by manufacturing doubt about climate change. Nowadays, you can't really do that anymore. I mean, uh, uh, most people would not, well, the majority of people would not buy that. So the new way to stall and buy time is through uh, peddling false solutions to divert the conversation away from the need to curb emissions domestically. And uh, offset markets play that role. Uh, we, we discuss here a carbon offset and biodiversity offsets. But that's not the end of it. The UK launched in March this year a water pollution uh, offset market. Uh, and now there are talks to launch a plastic offset market. <laughs> so this is, I mean, and we know it's very easy to see that this market will fail. I mean, there's been a lot of academic research about that. But it doesn't, mark, it doesn't matter. You have a nice narrative to sell and you buy time. And as long as some suckers believe in it, boom, you can continue making profits. Do you see any way in transcending this tendency of, of using these financial tools in, in such a way? Or, or should we just say, scrap them altogether? There's absolutely no way these, these kind of financial market solutions can work. Forget about them and put just caps and that's it. You can't emit more. Um, I would distinguish. Cap and trade schemes could work if uh, there was the political ambition to make them work. Offsetting, no. Offsetting, and the, the moment it, it, it gets some environmental integrity, assuming it can be done, which I don't think it can in the case of biodiversity, it becomes too costly and it loses its political appeal. Uh, and, and also we know what works. I mean, you know, we, there's no lack of solutions. Um, what works is environmental regulation. Think of the Montreal Protocol to ban CFC gases that cause the hole in the ozone layer. Sake of the ban on asbestos. We know that works. That's not a problem. Um, but of course, because it works, it generates more political resistance. Now, the question is, do you want to go for the path of least political resistance? Or do you want to uh, push back? I mean, the, 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 the past 30 years suggest that the path of least political resistance may not be the most effective one, but, you know, and as well as the history of social progress. But then each, you know, everybody uh, has their own views on that. But yes, no, they're absolutely not part of the, of the solution. They're absolutely not part of the solution because they merely obfuscate the truth. And again, as we discussed in the very beginning, you know, what needs to be done according to the scientific consensus is curbing emission or destruction and, um, of, and sequestering in past emissions or um, restoring past degradation. But offsetting does neither of these two. So it you know, so for that reason, it really is not part of the solution. And it, it gives the illusion that we're acting when we're not. That's what's problematic. I mean, there's nothing wrong with restoring and sequestering CO2, right? What is problematic is that when it comes instead of curbing destruction and not in addition. Mm-hmm. And, and that's what offsetting enables. And that's why it should be scrapped. We absolutely do not need it for... Um, you know, to address the environmental crisis. On the contrary, there was this very interesting um, interdisciplinary paper of uh, I'm one of the co-authors, so I'm obviously very biased. Um, but it, it was an interesting paper because I found uh, it was a paper who asked what explains 30 years of failure to address climate change, 
and it's it's it ask experts of many disciplines. And what was interesting is that one common conclusion emerged. Oops, sorry, one second. So there was one conclusion that emerged from all disciplines. And the conclusion was, it's not a question of lack of awareness of government. And it's not an issue of lack of solution. It's a question of um, power dynamics and vested interest. And that says a lot. Once you understand that, you understand that it's uh, arm wrestling and power dynamics for those who do not want to lose the wealth and power attached to the current way of life and those who are more concerned about the future. We talked a lot about this mechanism um, contributing to neocolonialism. Now, we're just before the the COP, and my question is, um, how how could the Global South fight against this? Um, Well, the Global South should uh, reject these schemes and instead ask for proper loss and damages uh, payments to accept, for example, to um, not destroy its own biodiversity or to curb its emission and forego the related economic development. Uh, that would be uh, much preferable and much more effective and also a more just, because currently these market schemes um, replace the chance of such less and damaging discussions. And also, um, the, the, the global South is only a tiny fraction of the revenues of these schemes. And finally, I'm asking you the question we ask all our guests. What is your rebellion? What is my rebellion? <laughs> um, probably from my market days, I have a very strong aversion to bullshit. So that's really what pisses me off. I mean, I can... I can understand if you are um, cynical, if you have, you know, we all have our limitations, etc., etc. But I really have a strong aversion to hypocrisy. And so that's why what I'm trying to do is to try and debunk this uh, false solution. Because I believe that uh, independent expertise is a public good. So so that's my rebellion. (laughs) Thank you very much. And and thanks to all of you for spending time with us. Stay tuned with us for our next episode. Bye, Frederick. Bye. Thank you for listening to the podcast series of the European Society for Ecological Economics. If you like the conversation and your work is related to ecological economics in any discipline, consider becoming a member of our society to stay connected. If you are ready to discuss the topic, join our Facebook group called European Society for Ecological Economics.